Amen. Enjoyed it very much. Thank you, Mary. We appreciate it very much. I'm glad to have you here this morning. And we do have a few that I was going to ask. Has anybody heard from Richard and Louise? Anything lately? I haven't either. Okay. Just wondering how they're doing. Okay. And glad for our guests being here with us this morning. Glad to have you here to join us in worship of the Lord and pray that God's word will be a blessing to your heart this morning. Um, let's see. I guess I don't have any real announcements to make either. I was just sitting here trying to think. The only thing we've got coming up, we had a new announcement in our family back in Indiana. Uh, um, be Janet's nephew, or Janet's um, sister, and her husband, Kevin and Judy, that visited with us here back last summer. Their oldest son's getting married, and that was kind of a shot out of the blue. I mean, he was one of them guys you expected to be a bachelor for life. Here he is, and he's getting married at the end of March. So and that's that came as a, a little surprise to us. But anyway, things are going well. Have you uh, ever announced this? No, I have. Is that... Uh, the conference, yeah, you ought, you should mention that. There's actually two of them coming up. Go ahead and mention that one. Yeah, well, I, I laid it there on purpose. I, I'm the one that put it there. I was just because I knew you'd remind me. Yeah, go ahead and tell them about it. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Hamill Road, right? Right. Right. And if the reason I announced that is if there was any others that were interested in, in that, um, it's February the. Oh, what'd you say? Ten and eleven. No. What? What days? February 10 and 11, yeah, and from uh, starting at 9 o'clock in the morning. If you've ever been around Renly Showers, then he is, um, I mean, he's an awesome speaker, and he knows his prophecy, and uh, you would indeed be blessed by sitting under his teaching. There's, you would enjoy it. I mean, no question in my mind you would enjoy that. So, anyway, I thought we would announce that and let you know. Also coming up in March, there I think it's March the 11th. I don't remember the date exactly, but they're having Holocaust Day at the uh, IBJM. This is this little conference here is being held at the International Board of Jewish Missions on Hamill Road, and um, there'll be a, a special emphasis on the Jew on that day and concerning the Holocaust and and scripturally, you know, the prophecies concerning Israel and what uh, yet lies in store for them. So. That's another possibility that you might want to participate in. Okay. I dare not say it, so we'll just start. Genesis chapter 1 is a verse that, a couple of verses that we've mentioned very, very frequently. And um, this will be our launching place this morning. We've got several passages to look up. And so what we want to do this morning is just 
kind of rehearse a little bit of what it's stated there in verses 26 and 28. And what we're talking about there has to do with the purpose for which God made us. Why did God create man to begin with? And he tells us here in this passage, in verse 26, in concerning his, the, uh, his creation, he said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and the fowl of the air, and the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. And it says then, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And so when it says, let them have dominion, he specifically mentions male and female. So he's not just talking about men, the gender there, but he's talking about all of creation. Man and woman is to have rule or dominion over all of the rest of God's creation. Then he restates it again in verse 28. And God blessed them, and God said unto them, that is, the man and the woman, concerning them, be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. So they were to replenish the earth. It wasn't just Adam and Eve that was to have dominion and rule, but they were to replenish the earth, fill it, populate it, and then have rule over it. Now, if we will turn back to, <coughs> excuse me, Luke chapter 3. And verse 38. In Luke 3 and verse 38. The last verse of that chapter is the end of a very long genealogy. And, of course, it's the genealogy concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. But when you come to the end of that, and, and, it's, and it's tracing his genealogy back to the very beginning. And it says concerning Christ, which was uh, the son of Enos, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam, which was the son of God. And basically what he's delineating to us there is the genealogy tracing the Lord Jesus Christ all the way back to Adam and, of course, ultimately to God so that we see that his source, his origination, where he came from was God. But it's through this generation, these multiple generations of men and women that take us all the way back to Adam now, if we just look briefly at verse 23, you'll see that he says there, And Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph. And then you'll notice that in every verse following that, the article is not there. And it's supplied by the translators. And the article in this verse in the beginning serves, as it were, a capstone. So in Greek, you don't need to write it over and over and over and over again. It's, a, it's an understood thing. So the translators have supplied it for us there. 
And he goes on to say, then the son of Heli, and, and the, which, which was the son of Mathat, and so on. The son of, the son of, the son of. And he continues on all throughout these passages here. So we find then that Adam, who we find talked about in Scripture as being the first Adam, as compared to the Lord Jesus, who was the second Adam or the last Adam. And he tells us there concerning Adam, as we just read in chapter 1, his purpose in creation was ultimately to be a ruler, to have dominion. And so we see that part and parcel of God's plan from the very beginning has to do with government. It has to do with authority. Who is going to rule? And of course we know that God is the ultimate ruler of the universe, and he's the king. Over his creation, he has placed in subordinate positions those who have power, those who have authority over various realms in his creation. And, of course, there is the heavenly realm. There is the angelic realm in which they have positions of authority throughout the universe. Here, in this particular domain, earth, in this particular realm, he tells us here that he created man for a particular position, for a particular responsibility, which he is to, which he was to carry out. Now, I'm not going to take time to look at all the verses there, but simply to rehash the story there, we know how Adam and Eve, both through disobedience, lost their position. Theologians call this the fall of Adam, the fall of man. When man fell into sin, when man rebelled against God's authority and consequently lost that that position, lost that privilege of rule. Now, if you'll turn back to Genesis again, let's take a brief look at a couple of chapters here. In order to make comparison with what we just read in Luke chapter 3, with leading back to this whole idea of Adam as a son of a son of God. When and following upon Adam's disobedience, you know, he was an original. He was created in a specific position, but he lost it. And in consequence of that, when you read any genealogies following that, then you'll notice it says they're not of God, as we saw back there in Luke 3.38, but we see that they are descendants of Adam. And so if you look there in chapter 5, in verse 1 of Genesis... You'll see that it says there, this is the book of the generations of Adam. And all this simply is to tell us that the generations of men that followed upon Adam were in the same condition as Adam. That is, they had no right to this position of authority. 
they were not participants in this place of dominion and rule that God had originally created Adam for. And you see this generation after generation after generation. They all go back to Adam and then it stops. But we saw in Luke chapter 3 regarding the Lord Jesus Christ, it didn't stop with Adam, but it went right back to God as his source. Now we're going to get into that just a little bit more. If you look over in Genesis chapter 11, you'll see the same kind of expression in, in, in verse 10. These are the generations of Shem. And then, of course, over in verse 26, he takes us down to Abram in verse 26. And so, again, we find that if we took from Abraham, it would lead back to Shem, which, of course, would go back to Noah, which he was the only survivor the righteous man and his family that survived the flood. And, of course, if you follow that on back through the genealogies, then you'll find that it again takes us, of course, as we would expect, right back to Adam. And it ends there. And so all we're simply saying and all we're simply trying to point out here then is that in these genealogies, the expressions here limit us to where Adam was when he lost his position of rulership. And we find man in that condition then, and we find man in that condition today. Now, I want us to turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. verse 1. I want us to notice two expressions that are used in this chapter which tell us something concerning the Lord Jesus Christ and his coming to earth and his ministry (coughs) amongst us. It says there in chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And then you'll look over in verse 14, I think it is. Yes, verse 14. And verse 14, it says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. But now, he says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This word, as we said earlier, described in Scripture as the second Adam or the last Adam, in comparison to the Lord Jesus Christ, is described here in these two ways. One, representing who Christ was as regards to his heavenly realm, 
and the ministry that he had when he came to dwell among us as to his earthly realm. And in those two respects, we find, again, two expressions used to relate us to that. One being Son of God, relating to the heavenly realm, and the other, Son of Man, relating to the earthly. And so I want us to look briefly at those here in chapter 1. One of these things we see out of verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and it says, and the word was God, is that he always has been in heaven. He always has been God. He always has been the Son. There's never been any change regarding his earthly status, or his heavenly status. The other thing, if you'll look at John chapter 5, We'll look at a couple passages there. John chapter 5 and verse 18. We'll notice something there. It says, Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. And then look over at chapter 10. And verse 30. John chapter 10 and verse 30. Oops. No wonder that didn't look right. For some reason I jumped all the way over to Acts. That won't work. John 10 30. I and my father are one. And all these expressions tell us that by the own the, the very confession of Christ himself and being understood by the Jews that he was claiming equality with God. And because of that, of course, they wanted to, to stone him. Now, <coughs> we find also over in uh, Colossians chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, and I'm going, to, I'm going to read a verse out of John chapter 1, verse 3. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. These things pertain to his heavenly realm, his heavenly responsibilities, the qualities that he possessed. And in Colossians chapter 1... He tells us there again that, that all things were made by him. Verse 15 says, Colossians 1.15 says, Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature or all creation? For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And you'll notice in connection with this creation, these things mentioned here, dominions, principalities, powers, thrones, all have to do with this picture of, of authority, of somebody having a position of power or the right 
to do these things that he was doing. And, of course, they're all in subjection or subordination to him. He is over all. So that tells us a little bit about the second Adam. That tells us something about his position from heaven. But he's also the second Adam, the son of man. And I want us to look at that for a moment also. You remember we said in John 1.14, and the word became flesh. Now that sounds like a very simple statement. We can, you know, repeat that at Christmas time. We think about the birth of Christ, but think about how profound that little statement is. And of course, we've developed a technical word to describe that, the incarnation, the infleshing of someone who had no flesh prior to that. He became us, a man. And you'll notice as we, well, let's go back to Luke chapter 3 again. In Luke 3, in that same genealogical passage there, there's an interesting phrase. Where he says, and Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph. Now, of course, we know that he was not literally the son of Joseph. The incarnation took place through Mary. And we know that it was of the Holy Spirit. It was a miraculous occasion. And it was a miracle birth that Mary brought forth. And here he says, as was supposed, the son of Joseph. This word supposed is, is an interesting one. It's translated that way in about almost every passage where it's used. Sometimes it's translated think. In other words, as was, you could have said, as was thought here. But it's interesting, the root of this word goes back to the word namas, for law. And the word namas, or law, is also understood to be in the sense of a custom, or a way of thinking about something. Or, as some have translated this and expressed it, he was about 30 years of age being as to his legality the son of Joseph. And so the scriptures here are very careful and very clear to let us know that Jesus Christ was not a physical descendant of Joseph, yet he held the legal rights to what was to come from Joseph. And, of course, all of this then begins to fall into the issue of the firstborn son. And the Lord Jesus Christ, as the firstborn legal heir of Joseph, occupied that very position. And in throughout all the history 
of not just the Hebrews or the Jews, but as was custom in most nations then and even now, specific and certain rights are attendant to the firstborn. Now, I've said those things to take us to another thought or just a step further. Of course, and I might throw in another thought there that in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9, you remember that regarding this position of the second Adam of being made flesh, it says there, he was made a little lower than the angels. And it's important for us to grasp the concept of what Jesus was and what he became in order to procure on our behalf that which God had originally created us for. Authority. To be rulers. And through that then, that is through the Lord Jesus Christ and through what he accomplished in his death and the shedding of his blood, there is now open to us, open to men, the possibility through Christ of being restored to those positions. Now, of course, even as Hebrews says, we don't see anybody there yet today, do we? Because not all things have yet been under been put under the feet of Christ. We don't see him there yet today. But there is coming a day. There is coming a time when the Lord Jesus Christ will take his throne and following upon that, those whom he has approved, those whom have stood before him and heard those wonderful words, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into thy joy, will then have that ultimate privilege of sharing in the future rule of Christ during his reign upon the earth. 1 Peter 1.18, in that all this regard concerning us, tells us something also. 1 Peter 1.18. He tells us, Therefore, as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And of course, there's a clear allusion here to the redemption that took place with the nation of Israel, which was redeemed with a lamb that was without blemish and without spot. And the parallel there is, is that the nation of Israel redeemed with this lamb, an unblemished lamb, was said to be God's firstborn son. And the process through which Israel was born or birthed out of Egypt by blood and by miraculous power was brought through water out of Egypt and God birthed a nation. Now, it started off with seed, 
you have the seed of Jacob and his 12 sons who God miraculously used in a a marvelous way through Joseph to bring them down into Egypt. And what looked like an awful thing, even as Joseph said to his brothers, he said, you meant this for evil, God meant it for good. He brought them down there to save their lives because of a famine. And even throughout the 400 years that they were in Egypt, living under the grueling taskmasters that had been put over them in Egypt, God meant it all for good. The ultimate outcome. The birth of a nation. And God then, through the death of his own lamb, and by the way, if we go back to John chapter 1, you'll find there in his public presentation in his ministry, he was identified as the Lamb of God himself. He as an unblemished lamb, as Peter says, without spot, in the shedding of his own blood, accomplished the same thing. He made provision for birth. A new birth. And this new birth sent to us from heaven above. And, of course, if we go on then to read over in John chapter 3, when the Lord Jesus is addressing Nicodemus, he tells him there, you must be born again. Or as the literal rendering there is, you must be born from above. And, of course, the whole idea is you do have to be born a second time. There must be an experience of this birth to take place if we're ever going to see this kingdom that he's talking about and this this rule. If there's ever to be a participation in the future rule of Christ, then there has to be this birth from above. And so, also, I want us to look at Titus chapter 2 and verse 14. Titus chapter 2 and verse 14. Now, there's an... The word redeem is used there. As, as well as over here in First Peter, but it's two different words. Peter's use of that word is a word that means to loose, to loosen. When he redeemed us, he loosed us, he says, in that sense, from our sins. For as much as you know that you were not loosened, broken free, set free from corruptible things like silver and gold from your vain conversation. You didn't get set free that way, but you are set free through the precious blood of Christ. Now over here in Titus chapter 2 verse 14, he tells us there here concerning Christ who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity. Here it's... Purchase us out of the marketplace. And you've probably heard that expression, purchase us from the marketplace of sin. He bought us, in other words, and got us out of a situation we could never have gotten out of ourselves. 
And so through this wonderful means that God has provided through his son, he has loosed us from our sins, bought us out of that marketplace, and put us in a new position. Put us in a new understanding, a new relationship with God. Look at Luke chapter 24. You'll notice this similar expression here. He says, but we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. That is, purchased them, bought them, set them free, and that is, released them then from their bondage to the Roman rulers. And beside all this, today is the third day since these things were done. And they were so distraught. And didn't realize that that's exactly what Christ had done. He had purchased them. Luke 24, verse 21. <coughs> and then over in Matthew chapter 20. And verse 28. I always remember this one. We had this is one of the one of the fifty verses we had to memorize for systematic theology in the first semester. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. And we find the same word there. He came to give his life a ransom. That is as as the purchase price. For the many, or in the place of the substitution for many. And this here, of course, is the word the word loosing here. And so we find then here that what he's telling us in regards to all these passages we've looked at, we put all these thoughts together and, and we we simply see a very simple message, and that's all this is today. The purpose for man's creation, why God put us here to have dominion, the fact that it was lost through Adam's and Eve's disobedience, the sending of God's own Son to restore and replace and to give man the opportunity back to be put into that position once again. And so throughout the history of man and throughout this process, God has been about the business of calling men who will hear, who will listen to that gospel that we talked about, Angus. The gospel we talked about just this morning, a few minutes ago, that gospel, the one we see delineated for us in 1 Corinthians 15, this good news of what the Lord Jesus Christ has come to accomplish. And so what I'm trying to say here, that it's just a message that goes far beyond what we hear on the radio, what we hear in the average church today, that Jesus just came to die to save us from our sins so we wouldn't have to go to hell and we could go to heaven. End of the gospel. No more to it. That the gospel 
goes far beyond such a simple little message like that. And because of that, then, there is a huge, huge prospect before us of what he has in store in the future. When he says, I has not seen nor has ear heard the things which God has in store for them that love him, it is incredibly beyond our imagination what it will mean to one day actually be able to sit down on a throne. That's not a throne. To sit on a real throne. And when you, that happens, you will, f- and, I, and the only way I know to express it in the human sense is through the word feel. But you're going to know in the fullest sense of the word what it means to fulfill that which God created us for. It'll happen then. We don't know yet today. We are walking by faith today. Not by sight. The one who is looking forward to that future day, who is walking in relationship to God and his son, Jesus Christ, with the idea in view, with the hope in view of one day experiencing that, has really, in a sense, no idea what it's going to be like. Now, there is a sense in which we do know. And we referred to that passage last week. You remember back in Hebrews chapter 6? He says we've tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. You know that some Christians have actually done that. That they have been able to look to the scriptures, to the son of God. And in, with, in view of, in anticipation of what is yet to come out there in the future, hold by faith that which he has promised because they've seen it. Oh, not with the physical eye, but with that spiritual eye. They've seen what is out there to be had, to be occupied, to be grasped. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ had that at one time. There was a point in time, see, when he occupied and had all of that. Philippians chapter 2 tells us about that. Again, I know it's so funny that all these passages today, every one is just something we're extremely familiar with. But it was so heartening to me as I rehearsed these things and just rejoiced in my own soul over what God had promised to do. He says in verse 7 of Philippians chapter 2, he says there, but concerning the Lord Jesus, he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. But notice verse 6. That tells us what he did. He, He became a man, took upon himself the form of a servant. But verse 6 says, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God. In other words, he didn't feel like he it was something that he couldn't let go of and said, no, I'm not going to give that up. 
Did I tell you about Tori? I don't remember if I told you that. Well, this was, we were having our Christmas early. Uh, we had it on the 23rd, right after we got back from Indiana, because that was the only day we could get everybody together. Well, one of Krista's friends was going Christmas shopping. Of course, from here we were having, she wanted to know if she would babysit her girl for her. She's this about the same age as Tori, a couple months younger. And they're good friends. And so she said yes. And so we had an extra guest for Christmas. Well, what were we going to do? Here we were opening these gifts, and she didn't have anything. So Tori said, well, we could give her, I could give her something, one of mine. Well, we have a Christmas stocking, you know, and, and after we've opened the other gifts, we'll get the stockings out, and they get to give something out of there. So Krista said, well, maybe we could get something out of the stocking and give it to her. And Tori said, oh, yeah, she's all excited about that, you know. And, and so, but she didn't know what was in that stocking. Well, Krista pulls out this little little doll, like a Barbie doll. And she says, well, we could give that to her. And I don't I can't repeat it, but she said, Krista, Tori just looked at it and went, uh-uh. <laughs> like that. Uh-huh. Her eyes lit up when she saw that little doll and go, uh-uh. In other words, this was something I can't give up. The Lord Jesus Christ did not look at his position and his place in heaven as something where he said, concerning coming to this earth and being a man, he didn't go, uh-uh, can't do that. He gave it up came to us, came to you and I in the form of a servant, in the likeness of men, taking on a body of flesh so that he could accomplish redemption for us. Make it possible that we could once again occupy such a position, such a glorified position, such a glorified privilege of service to God. I like the title of that book I've mentioned to you before, one that got me started on this path to understanding what the kingdom was about, the reign of the servant kings. Because, you see, that's what Jesus was. He was a servant, and he's a king. And he will come back and occupy his place of king as a servant. And if we ever hope to be able to occupy such a position, and I know it's common, again, across the board, that, well, just because you believe in Jesus, we're all going to get to do it anyway, no matter how we've lived our life here. But I think the Scripture is very clear. Who gets to reign with Christ is laid out for those who love him. And you better understand that word love to mean your active obedience to him. Because he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And so that one, what I'm trying to encourage us in here then, is that that one who is walking faithfully in that relationship with Christ, as hard as it may get, as difficult as the day may seem, if you just continue to walk in faith, the promise is, is that day is going to come. It's going to come. Just as sure as we're sitting here today, that day is going to come. Now, you see, the day of accountability is also going to come. 
But the day is going to come when he's going to make accountability. He's going to make a proper reckoning. And then those who fit the criteria are going to be called to serve with him as co-rulers, joint heirs. And so this whole expression here then, son of God, son of man. When we read in the scriptures then, son of God, we need to understand that what we were reading there is that one is claiming to be the one who has the right to that throne. Because it was only sons that got the throne. Did you ever read back through the whole history of Israel? Did you read through the books of Kings? And you'll notice it was always so-and-so, the son of, who was the next in line to occupy the throne. They didn't go out searching throughout the realm to find another suitable ruler. It was the son, the firstborn. And, of course, that's where we want to be found. To be found as firstborn sons. Experiencing that biblical phrase, the placing of a son. The English translation says adoption. But we know that means to be placed in the position of a son. And that is a future, yet-to-be-experienced thing. Hasn't happened yet today. I used to teach it that way. Y'all learn better. It's something yet to come. I'm telling you, there is a glorious day out there and ahead for us if we just stay faithful to Him. And let's just do it. Let's just do it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this privilege. It's a joy of ours to be the children of God, to be the sons of God. Lord, we know there's coming a day. There's coming a wonderful day that you've promised to us when we will have that joy and that privilege of sharing with Christ what he's come to deliver us from and bring us into something that is so far beyond our imagination. We cannot conceive of the joys, the pleasures, the wonders that will be there when Christ is sitting on his throne and we're able to share in his rule with him. Lord, help us to see it with our eye to understand what you've revealed to us in your word so that we can take solace in that, that we can rejoice in it, that we can endure through all the trials of life, that we can be like those Hebrews 11 Christians who when we come to the end of our life, it can be said of us that we died in faith. Grant it, we pray, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. And we pray that that will be the case with us because we know that as we meet together, small as we may be, week after week, the church comes together in a place like this for teaching, for edification, for fellowship, for the mutual encouragement of one another along this path so that we might all safely arrive one day.